Thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that it reveals to us. Not only does it reveal to us a little bit of who you are and how you see us and how you love us, but it also reveals to us how to live this life, how we are to live, how we uh, are able to live the life that is most pleasing to you. And Lord, we thank you for the power that you give to us through your Holy Spirit to be able to live that life as, as, as much as we can to please you. Thank you for saving us. We thank you for forgiving us. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Forgiveness. One word that holds so much power. It can hold someone back from forgiveness for years. That's one side of it. On the other side of it, it can break chains and it can free from crushing guilt. And it can bring freedom to the one extending that forgiveness. According to Today.com, in October of 2006, Matt Swatzel, a firefighter and EMT, was coming off of a 24-hour shift with only having had 30 minutes of sleep in that entire time frame. He was less than four miles from his home when he fell asleep at the wheel and crashed into a vehicle containing a pregnant woman named June Fitzgerald and their 19-month-old daughter. Devastatingly, June and her unborn child died in the crash, but the 19-month-old survived. June's husband, Eric Fitzgerald, is a full-time pastor. Fitzgerald grieved the loss of his wife and unborn child with close family and friends. He also grieved with the students in the youth group he led. And during that grieving process, one of the students brought up that she couldn't stop thinking about how the other man must be feeling right now. Fitzgerald told her she was right and saw the opportunity for practicing what he preached. Today.com reported that Fitzgerald said, quote, you forgive as you've been forgiven, said Fitzgerald, referencing a Bible verse. It wasn't an option. If you've been forgiven, then you need to extend that forgiveness, end quote. That mindset set into motion a couple of powerful events. As a county officer, Swatzel, the one who caused the crash, faced sentencing for a felony and harsh jail time. Fitzgerald started his forgiveness by going to court and pleading for a less harsh sentence. Because of this, Swatzel only ended up having to pay a fine and do community service. After a two-year criminal investigation during which Swatzel was not allowed to communicate with Fitzgerald, Swatzel wanted more than anything to express his overwhelming thanks to Fitzgerald for all he had done for him in spite of his tremendous loss. The day before the two-year anniversary of the crash, Swatzel was at a grocery store to pick up a card to send to Fitzgerald and was back in his car and was about to leave the parking lot when he saw Fitzgerald walking into the very same grocery store. After the two men introduced themselves to each other, Fitzgerald responded that he wanted to be in Swatzel's life. 
From that moment on, the two started a friendship that at the time of the Today article, which was written back in 2014, was already six years strong. The two started getting together to eat meals together at restaurants every couple of weeks and started attending church together. Swatzel, now 27, is married with a child and was quoted as saying, I can honestly say that without this friendship, I don't know where I'd be. That's the power of forgiveness. A devastating loss to a pastor could have destroyed several lives, including the destruction of faith for the many who were connected to his ministry and watching how this guy would respond. But because this pastor chose forgiveness instead of hate, he protected himself from being completely destroyed by it and saved this young man's life from being destroyed. By choosing forgiveness, this pastor proved that God's plan is not random or pointless, no matter how heartbreaking it can be. He not only saved this young man's life, but I'm sure made a powerful impact on God's kingdom, on the many lives he was connected to through his ministry. We don't know what power will be unleashed through one act of forgiveness. Jesus told a parable on this exact same subject and reveals a very powerful truth about who God is and the power of forgiveness. This whole parable is initiated by one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, asking Jesus a very poignant question. We read, Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Obviously, this isn't a mathematical equation for those of you who are keeping count, but it's hyperbole showing how often we should forgive someone else who has wronged us. Now, what's kind of funny about Peter bringing up this question up to Jesus to begin with is that, as one biblical scholar noted, Jewish teachers by this point had had limited forgiving someone only up to three times. If you forgave somebody three times, you were off the hook. You didn't have to do it any, anymore after that. That's what Jewish teachers were teaching people by this point. So in Peter bringing up this number of seven times, he probably thought he was being generous in, in his amount of forgiveness, in his limit. But Jesus blew even that out of the water by exploding that astronomically. In other words, Jesus' reply to Peter was, there is no limit to how many times you should forgive someone. You must always forgive them. And to drive this point home, Jesus began to tell a story. Now, at first glance, when we read this, we may not catch the humor of exaggeration here that Jesus' listeners would have caught when he told this. According to one biblical scholar, Jesus introduced this exaggeration as humorous. That was his point, to let down the guard of his listeners as they're chuckling at it, and then drive the point home in a graphic way that would have hit his listeners in a very forceful way. 
So let's get into the story. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew 18. We're going to be starting in verse 23. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also take that and turn to Matthew 18, uh, 23, or download uh, the free Bible app from life.church on your phone. Uh, Matthew 18, 23, we read, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared... That's how you know this is going to be a parable. What follows is going to be a parable, because it's always connected to the kingdom of heaven, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, as explained by one biblical scholar, the scenario that Jesus is describing here is not what we would initially think when, when, we, when, we, read the, when we read the word slave here. Firstly, by this picture, Jesus is describing a Gentile king who is dealing with subservient government officials. They're, it's not translated very well in the English here. These aren't slaves as we would, as we would think of it uh, in, in this context. These are subservient government officials, and we can tell that by the rest of what Jesus says. These specific tax officials served under the king by collecting taxes from the peasants in the regions they oversaw. These tax-collecting officials were allowed to overcharge taxes and pocket the profit, but they were also held accountable for the tax amount that was owed to the king. So again, who this Gentile king is dealing with here are government officials that he has set over different regions of his kingdom, and their job is this. Their one job is to collect taxes from the peasants who live in those regions. That's their one job. How they provide for themselves is they overcharge in those taxes and pocket the profit. But the flip side of that is they are also held accountable. So say region A, this government official A over region A, owes a certain number of money to the king each year in taxes. If those peasants don't pay up or they don't have enough money to pay those taxes, guess who is held responsible? to pay that same figure to the king because the king will get the money he is owed either way whether it's from uh, the government of, uh, from the peasants or from the government official himself but that's what this these guys job was their one job was to collect the taxes from the peasants if the peasants under these tax collecting officials could not pay their taxes or those officials dipped their hand too much in the pot because they wanted to own a Ferrari and they just dipped their hand in the pot too much, but they still owed those taxes, those officials had to make up the difference. That king was going to get his taxes no matter what, whether it was going to be from the peasants themselves or from the official making up the difference. The taxes owed to the king were going to go to him no matter what, and those officials were held accountable for it. Now, the reason I've gone over this over and over and over again is because that is the underlying foundation for this entire parable. At least once a year, those officials were to go to the king and give him what was owed to him and settle their accounts with him so that they started the next year off with a balance of zero. They paid those taxes to the king that they were supposed to pay. Now here's where the humor comes in. Verse 24. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Hilarious, right? And you might think, boy, Pastor Justin has an incredibly weird sense of humor because that was not funny at all. 
I read that. That was not funny at all. I don't know what in the world he is getting at. But to Jesus' listeners, they might have even seen a smile come across Jesus' lips when he said that sentence, because we all know God has a sense of humor. According to one biblical scholar, this is a completely impossible amount owed. And that was the point. Here's why. See, a silver talent was worth 6,000 drachmas, or 6,000 days wages for an average Palestinian. What's the figure, though? 60,000, right? So he, or a ten, um, 10,000 talents. So multiply that by 10,000. So what do you have? That's 60 million days wages that this one official owed to the king. If you look that up, and I did, and translate this into U.S. dollars today using the current New Jersey minimum wage rate for a day's worth of work, the amount this official owed to this king for only one year of taxes, and this is what, why this shows this is a completely impossible number, was $7.2 billion today. That's how much this one official owed to the king for one year. <laughs> uh, you can see the humor in this. This is a completely exaggerated amount. That's unheard of. That's an unheard of amount of money owed by one person who is not wealthy. Back in Jesus' day, to Jesus' listeners, that's more than the average annual income the king would receive in taxes from all of his tax collectors, and probably more that was even in existence in his entire kingdom at that point. That was why this was humorous. This is a completely impossible figure. <laughs> And what makes this a little bit funnier is only a completely incompetent official would allow himself to be in that much debt. For that's a wildly impossible figure to be in debt for. And what does that say about the intelligence of the king who put him in that position in the first place and allowed that debt to build up that much? Now that's the humorously astronomical amount of debt this one official owed to this king and what that says about that official and about that king for that matter. And that's what drew Jesus' listeners in. What follows, however, is not funny at all. This king fuming over the dysfunction and total irresponsibility of this official sentences him and his family to this, verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, that's stating it mildly, the, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with, with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now the practice of selling one's family members into slavery to pay back that person's debt was a Gentile practice that the Jewish people thought as horrific as they well should. As one biblical scholar noted, the math of this judgment does not add up at all, either. The sale of these human beings would have only given the king at most 2,000 days wages per person, so the king was not even going to get back one one-thousandth of his losses from this official. 
But as this scholar noted, a king with this bout of math skills is a big reason why this official was allowed to build up this much indescribable and unexplainable debt to begin with. Quite understandably, this official responds with desperation. Verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Again, this promise that this official makes is totally impossible to fulfill. But the king knows how impossible repaying this debt would be, so he would rather be seen as benevolent by his subjects and just eat the loss, seeing as he wouldn't come anywhere near recouping that loss, even with his judgment. So the king responds with compassion and forgives that official his insanely irresponsible greedy and dysfunctional actions in verse 27. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That's incredible. That, that even in and of itself was an impossible situation. No earthly king would have done that. The story very well could have ended there. Ending there still would have proved Jesus' point of forgiving someone a limitless amount of times seeing how that official, how much that official had cheated out his king. But Jesus wanted to drive the point further home. So he introduces another element to this scenario that anyone would gasp at and just shake their heads at the absurdity of it. This is what happens next, verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves, fellow officials, who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. <laughs> oh, man. We are probably chuckling at the absurdity of this and the flat-out blind audacity this official has. Can you imagine? Remember what that first official owed. At least 60 million days wages, or in today's U.S. dollars, $7.2 billion. He was forgiven that entire debt. A lot of people are hoping for some school debt forgiveness by our U.S. government, but I am 100% sure that none of that individual school debt comes anywhere near $7.2 billion. This guy, who has just forgiven the equivalent of $7.2 billion, goes and finds someone else who owed him what Matthew describes as 100 denarii. Do you see the humorous, glaring difference in debt owed? First of all, just at first glance here, a hundred denarii or a hundred days worth of wages only comes out to $12,000 today. While that's still a decent amount of money, it still doesn't come anywhere near $7.2 billion. Notice what Jesus says. The guy that owed the $7.2 billion doesn't just stumble upon this other guy in the marketplace and ask him when he's going to come around to coming up with that $12,000. No. He goes and aggressively looks for him. That's just ludicrous, isn't it? If I were him, I'd be so grateful that my $7.2 billion debt was just magically erased. I'd keep my head down and try not to get back in that hole again. 
wouldn't you? But this guy defies all the mercy that was just shown to him and aggressively hunts down another fellow tax-collecting official who only owes him $12,000. It's not even like the first guy needed that $12,000 right now because he didn't have to pay anything back to the king. He had all of his debt erased. He was at a zero balance. He didn't even need it. But he still goes and finds this guy and has so little compassion on him, he starts stroke, straight up choking the living daylights out of him. <laughs> this guy, this guy's a real piece of work, isn't he? Understandably, the second tax collecting official pleads with the first for mercy, just as the first official did with the king. Verse 29. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Notice that? They're the exact same words that first official says to the king. How ironic. But instead of showing any mercy, any mercy whatsoever, the first official throws his fellow official into debtor's prison. Verse 30. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, one who's thrown into prison for debt-related reasons, we're understandably not going to be able to do what? Pay back that debt. If you're sitting in prison, there's no way to work, there's no way to make money, there's no way to pay that debt back. So the only way you were going to be able to pay that debt back is if you had friends and family who could help you out. So unless this second official had some friends and family members with money, he was going nowhere for the rest of his life. Over $12,000 in comparison to $7.2 billion. Something as newsworthy as the king forgiving one of his debt-collecting officials the sum of $7.2 billion was obviously circulating among the other tax-collecting officials. Everybody knew about it at this point. So when they find out that that forgiven guy went and did something so atrocious, what do they do? They go and blab on him to the king that they served. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. I would not want to be that forgiven official right now. Would you want to be that guy? No. Certainly not. Naturally, the king calls that forgiven official to stand before him, as, as we read in, in, in verse 32. Then summoning him. So he calls him before him, and he's angry. He's angry for two reasons, as pointed out by one biblical scholar. Number one, He's angry because the tax-collecting official that's now sitting in prison has been forced out of commission and is now unable to do the job he was put in by the king. What was that job? Collecting taxes for the king. And who would now be losing that source of income? The king. That's reason number one why he's angry. Reason number two why the king is now livid is that this forgiven official spit on the king's benevolence and has now made the king look weak. 
He was forgiven. And what does he do with it? He turns around and does that with it. And how does that reflect on the king? Very, very badly. It makes the king look weak. That is not how you wanted a Gentile king to think people thought of him. And so quite naturally, this is what happens. Verse 32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Yikes. But he got exactly what he deserved, didn't he, for his ridiculous, selfish greed. And similar to that other official who only owed the $12,000, unless family or friends came to his, his formerly forgiven official's aid by paying his debt for him, he had no hope. And that's the nail in the coffin for this guy. Because what's happened? He has now fallen into political unfavor with the governing authority, and no one... No one in their right mind would risk their career or lives to help this guy. There's no way. And even if anyone did risk it, there was absolutely no way anyone could or would pay that $7.2 billion on behalf of that guy. If he was going around doing these things, I doubt he has very many friends or family members who like him, enough to pay $7.2 billion on his behalf. He would spend the rest of his life being physically tortured. Again, this act by this Gentile king was abhorrent to Jesus' Jewish listeners, even though everyone knew that Herod the Great would do it. And that was Jesus' point. He had his audience's complete and undivided attention at that point. I don't think anybody was staring off into space at that point by the time he got to there. And it's at that exact moment that Jesus utters these mind-blowing words. Verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. <laughs> Did you see that coming? Man, talk about getting a point across. Now, obviously, there are horrible, traumatic, heartbreaking things that happen in our lives that are very hard to forgive, and I'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's just be honest here, right? There are just some petty things that we in our humanity just refuse to forgive of someone else, aren't there? There are just plain, petty things. Someone keeps doing annoying things. Someone said or did something to offend you. Something deprived you of something. I'm sorry, but you need to get over it. <laughs> you need to get over it. You need to let it go. You need to forgive. Life is too short. Life is too valuable to hold on to those things. Because what do they do? 
They, all they do is they suck away joy and happiness from your life that God did not intend for you to lose. All of those petty things you refuse to forgive just torment you. And for no reason, right? For no reason. And on top of all that, you call God's reputation into question just like that official did to the king's reputation. This is what I mean. See, God has forgiven us of so much more than little petty things. We were downright enemies of God at one point. Our sin had racked up an astronomical, impossible debt that we had no hope of paying. But instead of giving us what we deserved, a hopeless eternity of torment like what that official ended up getting, he chose to forgive us and erase our sin debt. So who are we then to hold on to grudges towards anyone else like that first official did to a fellow official? Who are we to say, you owe me this? Who are we to hold grudges against any fellow human being? The simple answer, according to the parable we just went through, is no one and none. Those are the two answers. If we do, who are we in reality? We're being that formerly forgiven official who then went and found a fellow official to demand debt repayment. Do we really want to repeat what happened to that guy? I don't think so. Naturally, there are going to be times when we struggle with forgiveness. But especially for what are really only petty things, if we're constantly living a lifestyle of holding on to grudges and never really forgiving anyone, our salvation can honestly be called into question. Why? Because it's the complete opposite reflection of who God is. And to nurse a lifestyle of grudges and unforgiveness in reality is contaminating the reputation of God's character. Please, do not test the long, how far the long-suffering of the King of Kings' mercy will go for holding on to those grudges and refusing to forgive your fellow official, your fellow human being. Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. He was pretty upfront about it in verse 35. Those are pretty poignant, powerful, straight-to-the-point words. Now, obviously, there are traumatic events that happen in our lives, like in our opening story. There are heartbreaking losses that will happen in our lives. And there are unspeakable acts of evil that another human being will do to another human being, or governments will do to entire groups of people, these things will understandably take time to come to terms with and to forgive. But it's not impossible. 
And the whole reason why it's not impossible is because of God's mercy. Sometimes it will only be God's strength that he gives, to, that, that enables you to forgive someone else. Because God's character includes forgiveness because of his mercy, that's who he is. Forgiveness is what he's in the business of. Think of how many times he must forgive you per day. And he knows exactly the amount of strength and time needed to be given to you in order for you to forgive that horrible, traumatic event in your life. So if you've been struggling for a long time to forgive someone else because of a traumatic past event, seek God. Seek his strength to be able to do that. And seek his strength to continue to be able to do that each day from this point forward. Forgiveness does not free that person from consequences, but forgiveness frees them from destructive darkness, and it frees you from being defined by it. What has happened in your past is not who you are. That is not your definition. That is not who you are. So forgiving them breathes life into who you are as a child of Almighty God. Sometimes God is the one you're mad at. He's allowed something heartbreaking into your life, and there's seemingly no reason for it. But here's the reality of truth, and I want to say this as sensitively as possible while still speaking the truth. God is our king, and as our savior, does not need our forgiveness. And we, as the ones indebted to him and forgiven by him, have no right then to declare we have the right to withhold forgiveness from him. You see that? The foundation for this is where our faith is placed. If our faith is placed in the perfect sovereignty of God, then our faith is placed in the scriptural fact that he has a plan, and his plan is what? Perfect. We, as the creation, don't deserve to know what this plan is. But sometimes, in his goodness and mercy, God will reveal different portions of this plan for us, to us. And nowhere in scripture is there the promise that painful things will not happen to us. Show me. Show me in scripture where there's a verse that promises us that painful things will not happen to us. It doesn't exist. I guarantee it. In fact, the opposite is promised, especially for our faith in him. So unsurprisingly, that plan, even though perfect, will include painful and heartbreaking events. Why is that? There still is a reason even for that. And none of it includes a right to either forgive or not forgive God. That's not the reason for it. Always, 
these trials and troubles and painful events are meant for our faith growth. Logically, we all know that our faith does not grow in the easy and good times. Let's just be honest. It just doesn't happen in the good and easy times. And since God knows this, and because he is our good and perfect father, his parent, in his parental goodness, he does not want us to remain stunted children in our faith for the rest of our lives. Just like how any good earthly parent wouldn't want their four-year-old to remain acting and living and behaving like a four-year-old for the rest of their lives. They want them to grow up. They want them to mature. And that's the exact same way, it's the exact same thing God wants for us to grow us and to mature us. So he teaches us and he grows us through and by these painful events. Again, in his parental goodness, he knows we don't grow in the good and easy times. So he knows, and he knows we need to grow, so he uses these painful times to do that growing. So in every painful event, no matter what it is, there is meaning. Let nobody tell you there was no meaning. There was no reason for what terrible thing happened to you. Let no one tell you that. That is a bold-faced lie. There is always a reason and there is always a meaning in every painful event in our lives. There is meaning and there is deeper faith and there is new growth and there is new life. God is the God of redemption and forgiveness. And God, as the God of redemption and forgiveness, is an inextricable part of that. He has forgiven us from a dis disgustingly, impossibly high sin debt, so we forgive fellow humans who also have sin debt. What if the offenders never apologize? That's a good question. What if the offenders never apologize? The answer in question is this. Does it matter? Does it matter if they ever apologize? Where in any of the scripture verses we read today did anyone apologize for any of it? Nowhere. They, they said, have patience with me, I'll pay it back. But nowhere was there any apology. Nowhere was there any repentance. Even when Peter first posed this question, and when Jesus first answered him, is there any condition in there about, you know, if they apologize or repent? No. Are there any conditions? No. Here's the thing. The offender may not have even realized what they did, much less apologize for it. It doesn't matter. The offender may have known exactly what they were doing and aren't repentant of it or apologetic for it, and that's why it shouldn't matter. That should not hold you back from the freedom of forgiving them, because if it was based on their apology, you would never have freedom from that. So your freedom by forgiving them cannot be based on that, on whether or not they apologize to you. In fact, it's not based on that. That's why it shouldn't matter. That should not hold you back from the freedom of forgiving them. When you peel back everything, no matter how painful the trauma was, it's really very simple. 
Just as Pastor Eric Fitzgerald said in our opening story, in the midst of his heartbreak, since we've been forgiven by God, we are also to forgive others. That's the basis. It's not whether or not anybody apologized for it. It's because we've been forgiven already from our impossibly high sin debt that we are then to forgive others. That's the basis, not based on what the offender has done or not done. It doesn't matter the circumstance. It doesn't matter if there's any kind of apology. If we've repented of our sin through what Jesus did for us by dying on our behalf on the cross, and we've already been forgiven by Almighty God for our impossible sin debt, He gives us the strength to forgive fellow humans. That's it. It's very plain and simple. Because we have been forgiven, we forgive others. What that does then, you know what that does? What that does then is that it drains all the power the evil one and the enemy of our souls has over us in using that event to keep us down or imprison us in the darkness of depression and crushingly low self-image self issues or destroy it. It drains all the power the enemy can wield in using that over us. Forgiveness smashes those change chains and obliterates that prison and leads you out of that to breathe the fresh air of freedom and discovery of who you are as a child of Almighty God, loved immeasurably. It gives you new life and new power. That's the power of forgiveness. So if you have a heartbreakingly painful event that threatens to define who you are or has already defined who you are, Ask God daily for the strength to forgive and know that is not who you are. You will finally start to receive the healing over time that you've craved your entire life. And for lesser offensive things, let them go. Let them go and forgive and live in the freedom of not letting those things influence your life, impact your joy, impact your happiness anymore. Let them go. Let us as followers of Jesus be a forgiving people. That that's what our default is. That we are forgiving people as we reflect with our lives who God is and enjoy the freedom of the forgiveness he first extended to us and sealed our eternal fates with. And with the forgiveness we extend, may we lead more and more lost souls to experience God's forgiveness through Jesus. The same forgiveness we experience and the hope that it gives. As Pastor Fitzgerald based his forgiveness on and quoted, I want to close our time this morning with these two powerful statements Paul writes to two different churches. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Colossians 3.13 Remember, again, this is the whole basis for everything. The Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. The Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And Ephesians 4, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving 
one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message on forgiveness, such a powerful force in this world that you have given to us. I pray that if, there, if there's anybody here who's holding on to something that's really just a petty thing, that's really not that big of a deal when you think of it in light of eternity, I pray that right now we would just let it go and we would forgive that person, whether, whether they said or did something to offend, offend us, or whatever it was, that we would just let it go and we would forgive them and we would experience the healing and the joy and happiness that comes through that. And Lord, if there's anybody here today or watching online later that's really struggling, really struggling with something, a, a, a very painful, a very traumatic event that has happened in their past that threatens to define who they are, Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength, even right now, to forgive them, to forgive, and to start experiencing the everlasting and powerful healing that only you can give and start experiencing the peace and comfort and joy that comes with being freed from that. Experiencing that forgiving, that, that forgiveness and being freed from those chains, knowing that is not who they are anymore, but they are a child of God and may they, they spend this day forward discovering more and more of what that is and who they are in you. As we come before the Lord's table now, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to partake in the, in the elements. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.